Taylor. And I'm Kat. And welcome to the fourth episode of Square Mile of Murder. We're going to Northern California for today's case to 1980s San Francisco and the hills of Southern Humboldt County, following the case of James Clifford Carson and Susan Barnes, or as they are more commonly known, Michael and Susan Bear Carson, aka the San Francisco Witch Killers. And as killer couples go, these two don't seem to be very well known, or at least not here in the UK. Maybe more in the States? It was interesting. I was listening to a podcast about them, and I've heard of their case a couple times before, Mm. but um, this podcast, which I believe was the Big If True podcast, which was actually like a really good episode, um, they were saying, oh, yeah, you know, you might have heard of them as the San Francisco witch killers, because that's really popular case i was like i've never heard of that before but i'd never heard of the san francisco witch killers i'd heard of michael and susan bear carson but i've never heard of them called the witch killers me too that's the thing like it's the other way around so um, i don't know maybe it's um maybe some people have heard more of of one name than the other so susan bear carson was born susan barnes on september 14th 1914 and there doesn't really seem to be a lot written about her early life. But what we do know is that throughout the 1960s, she was pretty much a boring, middle-class suburban housewife living in Scottsdale, Arizona. She was married with two sons. Her husband made good money. And that enabled her typical spoiled housewife lifestyle. But she wanted more. Of course. Susan began experimenting with hallucinogens, including LSD and peyote, and regularly experienced, experienced, quote, visions. Although that wasn't a new thing, as she had claimed to have been psychic since she was a child. But these visions increased once she started using psychedelic drugs. Is peyote, is that what the, oh no, I'm thinking of ayahuasca. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I was going to say, is that what like Native Americans use in uh, ceremonies or something? But no, I think I'm thinking of ayahuasca. Well, actually, no, peyote is generally considered a Native American drug. Ayahuasca is more South American, I think. Oh. Um, not that I'm a world's expert on psychedelic drugs. <laughs> but... Something you need to tell me? <laughs> no. Um, but... No, yeah, peyote is generally Native American or American Indian. Okay. By the mid-1970s, she was regularly hanging out with friends of her teenage sons and getting high with them. She also regularly seduced and slept with her son's friends, who were presumably under the age of consent. And according to the Scottsdale rumor mill, she slept with over 150 boys and young men. Damn. Yeah, that's a lot. So, she's really quite a predatory person, even when she's still living in living this, like, suburbia lifestyle. Um, so, unsurprisingly, the drug-taking, the infidelity, you know, seducing her son's friends, the visions, which in hindsight were most likely the early stages of psychosis, destroyed her marriage. And after leaving her husband, or being thrown out, not entirely sure 
which happened first. <laughs> Was she thrown out? Did she walk? Who Nobody knows. knows. Susan decided to reinvent herself. She began spelling her name with a Z. So I don't know if that's meant to be pronounced like Suzanne rather than Susan, because I would say if it's an S, I would say Susan. And if it's a Z, I would say Suzanne. See, everything I've heard is just like she changed her name to Susan with a Z. Right. So she just really wanted that, you know, 26th letter coolness happening. Yeah, just stand out from all the other boring Susans yeah. in suburbia. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, yeah, so she began spelling her name with a Z, because she's cool like that, and claimed to, have, uh, claimed to have had visions in which God told her she needed to find herself a soulmate, a disciple. And in 1977, she met James Clifford Carson. I think this case is so interesting because it's like, you know, you always hear about the like cult leader dudes and they're like, oh yeah, I gotta go get me some harem of women. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But this is like this lady who's like a housewife, literally, and she's like, I need to get myself a disciple. (laughs) James Carson was born in Oklahoma in 1950 and was by all accounts, a bored middle-class kid who didn't want to conform to the middle-class lifestyle. James dropped out of school, but at some point he managed to complete a master's degree in Chinese studies at the University of Iowa, which is where he met his first wife. After graduation, uh, they moved to Phoenix, Arizona, and had a daughter named Jennifer. In a very unconventional setup for the time, Carson's wife went out to work and he was a stay-at-home dad uh who also dealt marijuana to earn extra money that's who cares you know he's he's industrious like that yeah he's a stay-at-home dad but he's also got an income he's got a side hustle yeah who who among us doesn't have a side hustle these days i mean this is literally our side hustle that we're trying to make our main hustle yeah so (laughs) you know yeah um this system worked for them for a couple of years um by all accounts he was a loving and attentive father but then by 1976 carson's behavior started to change he became increasingly angry prone to violent and angry outbursts and this along with his refusal to get a job to help support the family led his wife to leave him with their daughter in 1977 The couple divorced, and James Carson met Susan Barnes. While Susan was looking for a disciple, James was looking for God. The attraction was instant, and it was a match made in hell. (laughs) And there are a couple of different versions of why James changes his name to Michael. One is that he had a dream in which God came to him and told him his name was now Michael. I mean, that happens to me in all my dreams. God just is like, oh, your name's, your name's Cat now. <laughs> I know, your name, you know, just change your name every week. Your name is Fluffy now. Hey. <laughs> um, the second version is that when the couple first met, James told Susan his name and she responded by saying, no, you are Michael, an angel of God. 
And from that moment onwards, he went by the name Michael Carson. I actually don't know which version I prefer. I mean, they're both a bit bonkers. I mean, either way you slice it, God's in there. So Yeah, all God's doing. Yep. So Michael's daughter, Jen, would stay with them some weekends. But her previously loving and attentive father was now a completely different person. Michael and Susan would continue to abuse drugs in front of Jen, and she has since spoken of her experiences staying with them on weekends, said Susan would pretty much starve her, and she would have to wait until the pair had passed out following an acid trip, of course, and climb up onto the kitchen countertops searching for food before they woke up. And on one occasion, for whatever reason, Jen wanted her back rubbed. I mean, little kids like that, don't they? They like being fussed over. And Susan instead pulled up Jen's shirt and dragged her nails down the young child's back. Just scratching and cutting her. So, not the most maternal of cult leaders. No. She's not not so much a, a mother earth figure. More of a... Evil stepmom. Yeah. Not surprisingly, uh, Jen's mother was horrified by this and quickly cut off contact with Michael and Susan. But it didn't stop there. She became so afraid of them and that they would try to kidnap her daughter. uh, Jen's mother took Jen and and the pair went into hiding. She cut off contact with all their mutual acquaintances. And for the first few years, they would move around every few months to try and stop Michael and Susan from finding them or harming them. The pair got married in the late 1970s. Uh, Some reports say 77, which is pretty quick following their respective divorces, or 78, which is still pretty quick. Still pretty quick. And they spent the rest of the 70s traveling around Europe. And one of the places they visited in Europe was Ireland. And the importance of this will become clear later, so put a pin in it. Remember, Ireland. Ireland. While traveling around Europe, Susan, uh, in her drug and psychosis-induced visions, uh, developed her own religion, which was, you know, uh, I do that every other week, really. Oh, yeah, yeah. Just just get high and be like, okay, I am now, I'm now a prophet of God. Yep. Everyone must give me their money. Yeah. I mean, works out great for me, doesn't oh, it? Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so this religion uh, was sort of a, a, a twisted, radicalized interpretation of Islam with elements of Indian religions as well, like uh, Buddhism and, and Hinduism. And she is described as being the leader, and Michael was her disciple. Uh, but this isn't to say that Susan is to blame or that she forced Michael into doing her bidding, but she was the one who seemed to be, you know, having these visions and uh, had this alleged direct line to God. And they, they had they had chats together. Do, do you think she had to page him to see if he was free? Yeah. Or like, uh, was there like a long distance charge? Ooh, good question. Yeah. Who knows? No. Um, they really do seem to like feed off of each other. And when I was doing a research about like this case and couples who kill in general, they seem to be 
pretty clear example of a foliada, which is madness of two. Or in psychiatry, it's known as shared psychotic disorder. Uh, It's a rare delusional disorder shared by two or sometimes more people with uh, usually close uh, emotional ties. For example, husband and wife, boyfriend, girlfriend, siblings, parents and children. And the delusions are usually induced in the passive partner. So in this case, Michael was the passive partner by the active one who is Susan so she was very she was very much the leader but he was also a willing participant upon their return to the United States in 1980 the couple added bear to their names and were henceforth known as Michael Bear Carson and Susan Bear Carson uh which apparently they just decided to add that because they liked bears. That's the information I could find from this. It's like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I know. I love that, you know, she changed her name to add the Z. She told him his name, like God had decided his name was now Michael. Oh, we really like bears, so we're going to add that in as well. Yeah, it's not like, <laughs> oh, God decided the bear is a mighty animal and you must use its strength to spread my message. No, bears are cool, guys. <laughs> well, I mean... They're in, uh, are they in California at this point? They are, yeah. Yeah, so it is, isn't it on like the state flag and... Yes, the... Brown bear? Grizzly Grizzly bear? bear? A large bear of some description. I should, you know, I actually have a California flag in that closet over there. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Why is it not hung up? Good question. Other than there's not really a lot of wall space in here. (laughs) So... Uh, the the Bear Carsons, if you will, uh, describe themselves as vegetarian Muslim warriors. And the pair headed to San Francisco, where they continued to abuse drugs. As self-styled vegetarian Muslim warriors, the couple had a very twisted concept of right and wrong. So they believed powerful witches controlled the minds of those around them. They also believed that anyone who had an abortion deserved to be killed because fuck women and our right to ha- over our own bodies. They also believed that insulting a woman was equal to abuse. And that's important. And a reason for murder. Obviously. Yeah. Um, homosexuality was a sin punishable by death. And as was witchcraft. Uh, well, so I'd be screwed. Yeah. Because, you know, witchcraft. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Same. <laughs> I mean, I do go around insulting everyone, so. Yeah, the... <laughs> you'd be in real trouble there. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Just evil gay witches. Yep. What more do you need? Great band name. <laughs> Evil gay witches. Yeah. I forgot where I was. <laughs> witchcraft. We're on witchcraft. Yeah. <laughs> How could you forget? Because it's getting dark in here and I can't see. Oh, yeah. We should probably turn on the light. That involves movement. I will strain my eyes instead. They believed their God called upon them to kill these enemies for their own protection and for the sake of the country's future. As well as her visions, Susan was also a powerful yogi. And had knowledge of past, present, and future events. 
according to her anyway. Of course. So I think this is where they seem to be mixing the Indian religion in with Islam and who knows. (laughs) Just whatever the fuck they want. And she needed more disciples. So the pair set about trying to recruit recruit (laughs) recruit others into their weird Muslim vegetarian yoga warrior cult. Sounds like great fun. It sounds amazing. So, um, the pair had settled in the Haight-Ashbury area of San Francisco, uh, which, for those of you who don't know, uh, is generally thought of as the birthplace of hippie and drug counterculture. And uh, the Bear Carsons were very active in that scene. It was in this area that they met Karen Barnes, uh, no relation to Susan, um, at a party. Though most people were repulsed by the bear's odd and even hostile behavior, Karen was an open-minded spiritual seeker, and she found them fascinating. Karen was a 23-year-old aspiring actress from the state of Georgia, and she soon invited the Bear Carsons to live with her, and the couple continued their almost constant drug-taking and partying. But by March 1981, Susan had become very distrustful of Karen, uh, believing that she had falsely converted to their religion. And that was causing Karen to drain Susan of her yogic and psychic powers. Because that's totally how that works. Obviously. (laughs) Uh, So the pair had been out hitchhiking. Don't fucking hitchhike. It gets it gets better, though. They were hitchhiking during a thunderstorm. Oh, yeah, obviously. Because, like, it makes so much sense. So, yeah, don't hitchhike, uh, especially not in adverse weather. And don't pick up hitchhikers either. Yeah, don't do that. Um, Susan claimed that during the thunderstorm, God told her Karen was a witch who had to die. And that every time she said that out loud thunder would clap and that's how she knew it was a command from god well you know on monday we had that like thunder snow yeah yeah stuff which is like the loudest thunder i've ever heard yeah i was in my office in town and i like hit the ceiling (laughs) so like maybe that was god speaking to me saying you must record this episode about these nutballs yeah yeah and don't reveal that you're in a ball (laughs) Um, actually, I heard some thunder snow on the way up to the post office this morning, and oh. it, like, just didn't stop. Oh. It, it, it was a solid, like, 30 seconds of thunder, and I was like, what the fuck is going on here? <laughs> <laughs> or, uh, I think, so actually, weird. I think it was thunder hail. We've had some weird weather situations happening here in, in Scotland <laughs> this week. When the pair returned to the apartment they shared with Karen... They found her sleeping on the kitchen floor, as you do. Yeah. I, I assume Susan must have told her she had to. Probably. Since, Let's... you know, she was kind of converted to their cult. <laughs> and they stabbed her 13 times and beat her to death with an iron skillet. Ugh. So some sources say it was a frying pan, but <laughs> your laughter is the reason yeah. I decided skillet. <laughs> 
Yeah, but saying skillet sounds like actually serious. Whereas if you say they beat it to death with a frying pan, it sounds cartoonish and like slapstick and doesn't sound serious at all. It's very like Looney Tunes. <laughs> yeah. And they beat her so brutally that her skull was crushed. Oh my god. So that is not cartoonish. No, not mm. so much. Um, Karen's body was found by the police days later, hidden in the basement of the apartment building where she lived with the Bear Carsons. When police entered the apartment, they were met with what has been described as a scene straight out of Helter Skelter. The place was in disarray. Uh, the walls were covered in mysterious religious symbols and one word, Susan with a Z. That's not really keeping a low profile, is it? No, like, I'm sorry, but you're gonna murder someone in the house that you're living in. With them. With them. And literally leave a calling card at the scene of the crime. You are yeah. signing your name on the murder. Literally. Literally signing your... Like, <laughs> I just can't... These guys are so dumb. They're also very, very high a lot of the time. Ugh, it's just ridiculous. I mean, they might even have tried to write, you know, leave a forwarding address, and they were so <laughs> high it just became random <laughs> symbols. symbols. <laughs> you never know. True. So... Obviously, this made them <laughs> prime suspects in Karen's murder. Uh, but they'd already skipped town. Heading north to Oregon. And the couple hid in an abandoned cabin in the mountains near Grants Pass, which is in Josephine County in southern Oregon. So I think that's, I believe that's the county that borders California. Yeah. Uh, I, think I think so. so. Yeah. Um, Susan called the mountain Allah's mountain. So this seems to be like the first instance where she's actually saying Allah rather than God. Rather than God, yeah. So that's interesting, if nothing else. Yeah. Um, and they remained there for an unknown period of time. <laughs> because, I mean, we only really have their word for these things. And they were off their tits a lot of the time. Yeah, pretty much out of their gourd. Um, and then a park ranger found them and kicked them out of the cabin. But they met a friendly local who let them live in their treehouse. Uh, uh. <laughs> who has a treehouse? People in Southern Oregon, apparently. Like, cool, first of all. Yeah. I want a treehouse. But same. I would not just go letting people stay in my cool treehouse. No, I'd be living in my I'd, cool yeah, treehouse. Yeah, exactly. Like, what the fuck, man? Yeah. Get your priorities straight here. Yeah. So, friendly local, let them live in his treehouse, but they're very weird. <laughs> they done fucked it up, y'all. <laughs> I think you need to say that with an accent. I did. It was an American accent. Yes. <laughs> you are American. I still think you need to use a different accent. It's, it would sound good. They done fucked it up, y'all. <laughs> they did indeed. 
their uh, weird and combative behavior uh, annoyed the owner that much that he eventually evicted them. Amazing. Yeah. But Susan was not taking this lying down. After all, you know, she is a conduit for, for God. You know, who who is this man to tell her she can't live in his treehouse anymore? So rude. I know. I mean, I'd be upset if I was living in someone's treehouse and they evicted me. True. But, you know, I also don't believe God speaks to me, so you know. No, not usually anyway. Slightly more grounded in reality. So Susan instructed Michael to take revenge on the owner. They robbed his house and set it on fire. One of the things they stole was a handgun. Now, this is important. Then they decided to head south, back to California. I've asked the podcast gremlin to turn on the light when she gets home. <laughs> so, uh, I-, I love that we have a podcast gremlin. Yes. So if you're familiar with the 2018 Netflix docuseries Murder Mountain, um, then you'll know that Humboldt County in Northern California is known for three things. Marijuana, murder, and missing persons. The three M's. Oh, yes. That documentary is actually how I first heard about the Bear Carsons. Hmm. Um, I'd literally never heard of them before and then fell down a Wikipedia hole or two or ten. ten. <laughs> and we could do a whole series on, or multiple series on Humboldt County, the cannabis industry, the war on drugs... The high murder rate, missing persons rates in the area. Yeah. But for the purposes of this episode, we'll try and give you a basic rundown of the area and why it's so famous. Or, you know, infamous, as the case may be. Yeah, okay. Right, so infamous. You're right. So Humboldt County is a very rural area in Northern California. It's full of mountains and lakes and rivers. And it's made up of forests with, like, huge redwoods and sequoias. And it actually looks really nice. Yeah, it's like, beautiful country. I really want to go to Northern California. It looks so nice. I think I could deal with... I think I could deal with Northern California because Southern California, I'd be like, no, it's far too warm. <laughs> but North, I'd be like, oh, this is my temperature. But in Southern California, it's a dry heat. Oh. Now, uh, for for anyone who lives in a sort of more dry climate you might know what i mean by this but it seems to be a sort of thing that people give me a funny look about whenever i say here but like but it's so humid here yeah when it no matter what the weather it is humid it's humid and like i grew up on the east coast with you know 95 percent humidity and 95 degrees fahrenheit 95 percent mm. wanting to die every day in summer <laughs> um but like I don't mind a dry 100 uh, degrees. Actually, yeah, I do like a dry heat. Yeah. But um, but either way, I still I would like to go to Northern California. It looks, yeah. it looks nice. Northern California is gorgeous. Highly recommend. Mm. Because of its rural, isolated location and because land was so cheap, Humboldt County became a place where many came to escape mainstream society throughout the 1960s and later became popular... Uh, with Vietnam War veterans who were turning their backs on society. Uh, These original communities were very communal and were built largely on hippie ideals. 
And one of the staples of the hippie lifestyle was cannabis. But of course. (laughs) These small communities began growing and selling cannabis in the same way they grew and sold other crops and vegetables. But the money was put mainly back into the community as a form of what the OGs, that's original growers, (laughs) describe as self-taxation. They weren't paying federal income taxes because they were living off the grid and outside the law. So they built schools, a local health clinic, funded volunteer fire services, local parks. I mean, it's quite a nice system when you think about it. Yeah. Not that we can condone the illegal drugs trade, but as it goes... It was uh, very wise of them to build up their own sort of social uh, systems. I thought that was really cool. Yeah. And it's also worth noting that there were thriving timber and fishing industries in the area too. It wasn't just hippies moving there and growing pot. You know, communities and industries existed long before in this area as well. But the peace and love thing went out the window pretty quickly, unfortunately. So there's actually nothing special about the land in Humboldt when it comes to growing cannabis. Let we them... have lights. Yes, thank you, Podcast Gremlin. <laughs> thank you. Um, so there's actually nothing special about the land uh, in Humboldt County when it comes to growing cannabis, but the forests make it so easy to hide the cannabis farms from law enforcement. And that's really it. That's literally why and how Humboldt County became the home of cannabis in the USA. Makes sense. Big trees. Um. The war on drugs drove up the price of drugs, and so from the mid-late 70s onward, um, more and more criminal organizations moved into the area for the purposes of large-scale cannabis cultivation. And with them, they brought a lot more crime and criminal activity. Yeah, and we can argue every which way at Sunday about the legalities, or at least morality, of the original hippie communities growing and selling cannabis. Were they outlaws? Were they criminals? Were they hurting anyone? But even though, you know, it's just a little bit of weed, the reality is that the, the black, market, black market cannabis trade props up huge criminal enterprises, uh, such as people trafficking, sex trafficking, hard drug uh, trade, arms trafficking, and that all brings a lot of violence and ultimately murder. With the influx of people growing cannabis in the area, the so-called Green Rush, there was a massive increase in violent crime. So a lot of those who went to Humboldt in the hippie era began to leave. And in the 1990s, you then had a lot of gray area with the legalization of medical marijuana in California. Uh, And this sort of new regulation impacted how much farmers could grow and like how they could grow things and it was a whole it's kind of a mess yeah it it Um, wasn't it wasn't the best thought out no legislation at that point not so much Mm. uh humboldt county uh is part of the emerald triangle of cannabis cultivation uh so that's humboldt mendocino and trinity counties 
And in pretty much the center of these three counties, in southern Humboldt, is the town Alder Point, also known as Rancho Sequoia, also known as Murder Mountain. And it's in Alder Point in spring 1982 that the Bear Carsons find themselves working as trimmers on a cannabis farm. So trimmers, or trimmigrants, are people who make money during harvest season by trimming the harvested plants into marketable, sellable product. Um, basically, you work like 12 hours a day for a few months. You s- most places you sleep in the same room that you work in, probably on an airbed. And then once you're done, you leave again. And in Humboldt, uh, usually it's lots of backpackers or students that are traveling there for harvest season to try and get trimming jobs. And uh, one of the contributors to the Netflix show said that a lot of people think it's going to be just like one big reggae festival and they're going to spend the whole time smoking weed, hanging out with other people who love weed. But it's not like that. It is. It's hard work. It's farm work. Yeah. It's like long days. And and in, you know, some of these, on some of these farms, Mm. you've got, not necessarily the most um, upstanding uh, working conditions, yeah, uh, and you know, mm. employee rights. As yeah. in, uh, you have none of those things. So. Yeah. So if you want to go work in Humboldt in harvest season, get get some references from from other people who've worked on the farms. Yeah. Make sure you're you're picking the right one. Don't go into the forest with a stranger. No. Um, so, uh, Michael and Susan Bear Carson uh, worked as trimmers on a farm owned by Scott Johnson, who, if you've seen the Netflix show, um, you'll, you will have heard his name. He was a member of the Alder Point Eight. Uh, other workers on the farm later described them as anarchists who advocated revolution and predicted a nuclear apocalypse was imminent okay so maybe it's just because i'm really lazy but why why go for revolution if there's a nuclear apocalypse imminent (laughs) i mean it it makes more sense to wait for the apocalypse to happen than then yeah then yeah but i'm just lazy apparently the farmers in humboldt used to generally hire like they liked to hire women as trimmers or couples yeah. which and never like just men yeah on their own yeah. which like is an interesting thing but like boy it backfired in this case boy did they get more than they bargained for with these two fuckers i mean when you uh when you look into it yeah you can understand because women was it women eat less drink less sleep less yeah and and they're not going to come back and rob you yeah yeah so and like men on their own supposedly were more likely to you know yeah rob you or you know be violent towards women or whatever also working on scott johnson's farm was his best friend 26 year old clark stevens and Clark butted heads with the Bear Carsons pretty quickly and he just didn't get on at all. Which I think is quite a fair reaction given that 
they spend a lot of their time high and having conversations with God and advocating killing people and... I mean, I'm pretty sure I would also not get along with these two. Yeah. Pretty sure most people wouldn't. Yeah, I mean, this is why they're constantly on the move, because nobody likes them. Yes, true story. Well, no, that's not really the reason, but... Well, they're on the run, but, you know. One of the reasons. Mm -hmm. So one day in May 1982, Clark said something that Susan took offense to, or took as an insult. And remember, Uh according to their weird, twisted moral code... Insulting a woman is the same as assaulting or abusing her and is punishable by death. Susan ordered Michael to shoot Clark for this horrible offense of insult. Uh, So it was injury after insult, if you will. Yes. (laughs) Uh, Adding insult to injury? Yep. Adding injury to insult. Yeah. Yeah. It's, It's a complex one. Uh, so, yeah, so Susan orders Michael to shoot Clark, and ever the faithful disciple, Michael shoots Clark in the head with the gun stolen from the owner of the treehouse in Oregon. They then poured kerosene over Clark's body and attempted to cremate him. They then hid what was left of his body under chicken feed on the farm and then went on the run again. I mean... What? Like, so they kill him. Yeah. Hide him on the farm where they're all working, then disappear. Like, that's not the best thought through. I mean, I know that clearly there is some psychosis going on with Susan. How much of it to begin with was drug induced, I don't know. But I think at this point, it is clearly. It's very, very much like drug induced psychosis. Uh,. She's essentially a cult leader, even if she only has one disciple, (laughs) because she keeps killing her disciples. Yeah, go figure. Or her one disciple, (laughs) extra disciple that she found. But spare. (laughs) (laughs) But, yeah, like, hiding the body on the farm where you're all working, then disappearing, clearly points the finger at you. It's kind of like a big neon arrow of like, hey Mm. guys, we did it. Yeah. So, Clark was reported missing, and the police eventually found his body a few weeks later, buried on the farm. So, as we said, once again, prime suspects. You know, for having disappeared, you know, a day or two after Clark went missing. So, you know. And when police searched through the belongings a couple had abandoned when they went on the run, they found a manifesto. Which was basically drug-induced ramblings. Uh, And it called for the assassination of then-President Ronald Reagan. Amongst other celebrities. And uh, the manifesto stated that Reagan should be assassinated because he was a witch. So, you know. Ah, yeah. Back to the witch killing. Yeah. It all circles back around. (laughs) Uh, The authorities had difficulty tracking the couple down. But in November of 1982, Michael was arrested in L.A. after he'd been spotted hitchhiking by a member of the public. 
but owing to police error, he was quickly freed and vanished again before detectives from Humboldt had a chance to question them. Uh, the two of them then managed to evade police for another two months. In January of 1983, the couple were hitchhiking again. What is it with hitchhiking? It was... Yeah. Was it just a thing? It was a thing. Yeah. Like, I mean, we're obvious... I, well, I say obviously... I know we were always told growing up by everyone, you never hitchhike, you don't go off with people you don't know. You know, obviously, within reason, you know. This is why. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But it seems to be a pretty normal thing to have done back in, like, the 70s and 80s. Yeah. So I wonder if people were just nicer back then or people just weren't as cynical. Well, and I think that, like, if you think about cases like this or um like ted bundy like a a lot of these instances where these sort of horrendous people are picking people up from the side of the road i think a Mm. lot of those cases influence that you know thing of like hey don't hitchhike don't get in someone else's car and yeah you know I'm sure there were people in the 1940s telling their children, you know, don't don't get in someone's uh, Oldsmobile. But <laughs> yeah, it seemed like maybe a more naive, a more time. naive time. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, hitchhiking again. Uh, this time they're near Bakersfield in California, where they were picked up. By 30-year-old John Hellier, who was driving to Santa Rosa. And I'm just going to assume... You're nodding, so I'm going to assume you know where all these places are. Because <laughs> um, I have yeah. no idea. I just know that they're just names in California. Bakersfield's kind of in the middle of right. California. And Santa Rosa's further north of that. Okay, so they're basically heading back north. Yeah, they're going back up from right. LA. And as soon as Susan saw John, she told Michael she knew he was a witch and they would have to kill him. Of course. Obviously. A kind man stops and picks you up at the side of the road. He must be a witch. Yes. Evil. Kill it with fire. Oh. Well, not fire, but you know. Guns. So they climbed into John's pickup truck and they begun arguing pretty much as soon as they set off. So the couple tried to force John to pull over and a fight broke out between them as they tried to overpower him and take control of the vehicle. During this fight, John's leg brushed up against Susan's and that was his death sentence, basically. Dear sweet God. So John pulled over and got out of his truck to try and escape, but the couple followed him. Susan stabbed him and Michael shot him on the side of the highway in broad daylight. Um, So this is on the side of Highway 101 in full view of passing cars. I mean, after Route 66, that's probably one of the most famous roads in America. Yeah, like not the best place to inconspicuously commit a murder. No. Um, So uh, some of the passers by called the police um the bear carsons then drove off in john's truck which was quickly spotted by police leading to a high-speed car chase 
through Sonoma County. The couple were eventually arrested after Susan lost control of the pickup and crashed into a ditch. Yeah, clearly her yogic psychic powers weren't helping with the driving. Right. She <laughs> she missed that message from God. Yeah. Oh, look out for the ditch. <laughs> Once they were in custody, the couple said they would only confess to the murders at a press conference in front of local media. This is my favorite part. <laughs> hundred percent i just the fact that the police gave in to them as well i know that's it's just (laughs) it's a lot yeah so the authorities arranged a press conference which turned into a rambling five hour long farce basically where they laid out their twisted belief system and reasoning for the murders so rather than showing remorse, the pair thought that they should be heroes for killing witches. But in their own twisted way, they had essentially confessed to killing Karen Barnes, Clark Stevens, and John Hellier. Yeah. So, not brilliant, these two. Yeah. So they've they've left their name written on a crime scene. Yeah. Um, they've really stupidly murdered someone, left them at the place they both worked, and skedaddled out of town, making it pretty obvious who the murderers were. Oh, and left their manifesto Oh, right, and left well. their manifesto about uh, murdering the president. Um, and now they've literally staged this theatrical bullshit nonsense press <laughs> conference where they confess to all three murders. It's just amazing. Yeah, and it takes another twist. It does. It just (laughs) gets better. So this all happens. They hold their, you know, little show. Uh, But before the trial, they both recanted their confessions. Uh, and entered pleas of not guilty. And when they recanted their confessions, they were like, oh no, uh, the police coerced us to say that stuff. Yeah. The the police forced us into a five-hour press conference of rambling lunacy. Yeah. <laughs> I just... Totally plausible, if you ask me. <laughs> I mean, the, the whole thing of false confessions is like a well-documented phenomenon. Why is it such a hard word? Phenomenon. Phenomenon. Definitely don't have the rights for that. So false confessions are a well-documented phenomenon, as is police coercion, things like that. But I don't think you can really be like, oh yeah, so this this five-hour-long confession wherein we explained our twisted religion and you know all the reasons that we killed these people and why we're hunting witches and all this yeah the police made us do all of it yeah totally like obviously i mean the the thing is the pair of them they're just so drugged up at this point i'm surprised they can remember the names honestly especially because they keep changing them yeah but you know so how do they (laughs) How could they remember a five-hour script? True. So, yeah, they both 
pled not guilty. Uh, they were tried on June 12th, 1984, and both were found guilty and sentenced to 75 years to life in prison. Uh, Susan is incarcerated in Central California Women's Facility, and Michael is in Mule Creek State Prison. I like that name. It <laughs> it's sounds, a good one. It sounds cool. It does. I like Mule it. Creek. Mule I, Creek. Do you think there's like lots of donkeys there? Like, not in the prison, but, like, outside the prison. Just, like, taunting them, like, we're free and you're not. Uh, now I'm just picturing, like, um, a donkey in a, a, a black and white striped prison uniform <laughs> with a little so, prison hat on as well. So that's kind of, like, a cross be- between a zebra and a donkey. Yeah, yeah. Pr- prison zebra. <laughs> okay. Uh, now I want a pet donkey. <laughs> um, Mule Creek State yeah. Prison. <laughs> I'm just thinking about it again. <laughs> <laughs> In an interview following their convictions, uh, they described themselves as pacifists and that their crimes emerged from a shared mission to exterminate individuals they believed to be witches. And thus, they became known as the San Francisco Witch Killers. How can you be a pacifist and on a mission to exterminate somebody? Yeah, it's not really... Those two don't really go together. Yeah, that's... Uh, Come on, guys. Yeah. You know, if if you're going to have, like, a, a really virtuous, selfless mission, at least make sure it doesn't contradict itself. Yeah. Not saying that you'd ever get away with it. No. But, you know, at least make sense. (laughs) Please, for all of you crusading cult leaders out there, just make sure that your mission is not oxymoronic, please. Yeah. That's all we ask. Yeah. Well, we do run consultancy services. Yes. We, We will critique your manifesto. Yep, yep, yep. Just send it. Just send it to us. I can edit the shit out of that thing. <laughs> <laughs> uh, both of them came up for parole in 2015. Michael cancelled his parole hearing because 30 years after his conviction, his beliefs had not changed and he refused to show remorse for the murders. So, I mean, if you don't show any remorse, you don't get parole anyway, as a general rule. Yeah. Do so. Yeah, if you don't, if you've got no intention of even faking remorse, <laughs> you may as well just not waste everyone's time. Yeah. And Susan, similarly, uh, would not has never shown any remorse for her crimes. Uh, she refused to help her attorney prepare her case, and so she was denied parole. And she will. She'll next be eligible for parole in 2030, but neither of them, have sh- like I said, neither have shown any remorse, so not really very likely, is it? Yeah, and interestingly, they were only up for parole in 2015 because of a new law in California to help reduce overcrowding in California's yeah. prisons. Yeah, so, nothing to do with their no, behavior like, not like in good prison. behavior or anything. It was just yeah. sort of a loophole. And um, at Susan's parole hearing that she didn't bother to prepare for, um, 
a bunch of her like family members were like no listen you guys keep her because she's clearly still nuts <laughs> they were like we don't want her yeah please <laughs> yeah i mean there's a lot written about michael's daughter jennifer but yeah there doesn't seem to be as much about susan's family and how this has affected them yeah so but i think that speaks pretty clearly <laughs> kind of says it all it's like you know mm, that's okay she can stay in there yeah uh, Michael's daughter, Jen, has been in regular contact with friends and family of her father's victims and works with them to campaign against her father and Susan being granted parole. Uh, without parole, their official release date won't be until 2059, uh, by which point Michael would be 109 and Susan would be 118. So I think it's pretty safe to say they're going to die in prison. Yeah. I mean... When you think of how far away that is, we'll be in like our 60s. It's a long time. Mortality. <laughs> yes. No, it's a, it's a long ass way out there. Yeah. But I'm glad because it's a case in which life has meant life. And yes. It so rarely does anymore. Yeah. No. Um, and I, I think that it's good in this case that like these guys were so inept at murder and so like yeah. high out of their skulls that they just mm. like the police caught up to them and were like nah man you yeah. you gotta go to jail yeah and i mean i suppose unlike you know you kind of traditional serial killer <laughs> if you can say that you know they plan they you know they plan they kill they clean up and go about their daily life until that high wears off. And yeah. obviously you see the gap between the murders eventually get shorter and shorter. Because, um, but they are technically serial killers. They killed three different people on three separate occasions. Yeah. And that is a minimum to be a serial killer. But they, like you say, they were just out of their minds. They were high on drugs. They... Oh, definitely psychosis in there somewhere as well. Oh, yeah. Uh, whether drug-induced or, you know, predisposed and the drugs brought it out, I don't know. Yeah. But and... They, so, but being on this whole, like, mission from God thing, they won't have thought of the need to cover up these crimes because, you know, they're on a God-given yeah, mission. It's their, it's their sacred rights. Yeah, so... Yeah, no, they would definitely be classed in the disorganized column of serial killers. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but this is not the end of the story. So, remember when we said they traveled to Europe in the late 1970s? And Ireland in particular was an important stop. Uh, this is because authorities believe they may be responsible for a dozen murders in Europe and the United States, including multiple un unsolved murders in Ireland in 1978 and 1979. And currently there isn't enough evidence to bring any charges against either of them. But Michael's daughter Jen has been working with police forces on both sides of the Atlantic 
and given DNA samples to try and help solve cases which her father and Susan are suspected in. Which, like, I would totally believe that they, you know, committed some murders over here on the side of the ocean because to to go back to California and basically start killing right away. Yeah. That seems, like, really quick. Yeah, there's no... I mean, uh, we said they they were out of their minds, but there's no kind of build up to it. It's there's a thunderstorm. God says kill Karen. They go back home and kill and her. kill Karen. Yeah, exactly. There's, there's no thought or preparation really going into it. So yeah, so yeah. it would make sense that while they were in Europe, they've sort of escalated to that point where killing in the name of God is like the thing to do. Yeah. So they're also suspects in a number of murder and missing persons cases in Humboldt County. Yeah. Uh from nineteen eighty two. And it was well it was the murder of Clark Stevens is why that area is now called Murder Mountain. Yeah. After that it just the name just stuck, but there is a lot of suspicion that they were killing other people. They were only there a few months, but wrong. Well, Clearly, yeah. once they set their mind to something. Yeah, so they could be. Yeah. They could, I, they could be quite a few more victims out there. I definitely believe that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So that's the case of Michael and Susan Bear Carson. And um, we'd love to hear your thoughts and comments and uh, manifestos. And oh, yeah. no, not that that last one. Sorry. Oh, oh yeah. Okay. <laughs> We can. We will. We'll review your manifestos. Just just email. For a fee. Oh, yes. <laughs> uh, so come find us on social media. Square Mile of Murder on Facebook and Instagram. And thanks for listening. Yeah, thanks. Bye. Bye. Bye.